This podcast is a quest for well-being, a quest for a meaningful life through the exploration of fundamental truths, enlightening ideas, insights on physical, mental, and spiritual health. The inspiration is love. The aspiration is to awaken new ways of thinking that can lead us to a new way of being, being well. Welcome to Body, Mind, and Soul Healing Conversations. We want you to enjoy the contrasting experience just like you enjoy the contrasting buffet. And we want you to reach the place. And practicing virtual reality will help you gain this confidence that whenever you're in front of a buffet that is so much that you do like to eat, as well as some that you don't like to eat, you don't feel frustrated that there are things there you don't want to eat. You don't feel compelled to put them on your plate and eat them. You just pick the things that you like. And the universe of thought is the same way. You can choose from it the things that you like. Esther Hicks, 2003. Valeria interviews Leslie Davis. She is the author of The Five Solutions, Manage Anxiety Without Medication. Leslie is a licensed marriage and family therapist, LMFT, with 29 years experience. She has worked at a few large organizations such as Kaiser, but chose to use her training in a meaningful way by going into private practice for 15 years. Leslie has always had an interest in new and cutting-edge techniques. Her training in EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, tapping, IFS, internal family systems, compassionate inquiry, and EFTC, emotionally focused therapy for couples has led her down a rich personal and professional path. She shares her views and successes in the hope of enlightening those on a similar journey. Leslie resides in Sacramento, California. She loves cycling, hiking, reading, gardening, though she spends a lot of money on new plants, yoga, and cooking for friends. Meet Leslie at lesliedavismft.com. Here's the interview with Leslie Davis. In your own words, who is Leslie Davis as of now? Well, as as esoteric as that is, <laughs> yes. I'll try to um, first start by saying I'm constantly changing and growing, which, oh, I give gratitude for that every day. Um, I can't imagine inter- you interviewing me 30 years ago. <laughs> I, uh, yeah. So who, who I am is mm. a person who I think is continually coming into my own. And when we were talking earlier, we were talking about what is your own. It's a very spiritual place of owning that you are a spiritual body having an mm. earthly experience. Yes. And so I'm constantly trying to open up um, my wounds and my rigidity to what is really out there because we can close. I was closed off to it for so many years in my life. Right. 
So who I am is just constantly growing and constantly embracing the love and the support and the beauty of this place that we're in. Wow. What's not to love about that, (laughs) that idea, that vision, (laughs) that concept? Yes. And I do connect, as I also said off record, healing with spirituality. They're very much connected, which is spirituality to me. It's something so, I mean, it is psychology in a way because it is the the understanding of self, right, Les? That's how I see it. The deeper Mm -hmm. we go, the better it is, actually. And the deeper we go, the more amazing understandings we have about what we are, not even who we are. And I guess that was the biggest insights. The more I tapped into this, the underlying reality that holds all this together, I noticed that I didn't even know who I was. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. because knowing what I am, it kind of makes you doubt who you are. It's almost like we don't need to be a who. reality, Reality is constantly changing. It's not rigid. So you're right, that deep dive into who we are actually scares a lot of people because mm, religion yeah, yeah. religion talks about spirituality and moves it out to other and to him and to you know that and and it makes it externalized and I think that man uh, mankind has really misinterpreted or left out the core of what spirituality is. It is actually going within, and that deep dive can be really scary if we have, you know, a horrible or even threatening or non-affirming experiences when we're young. Yes, yes, that that's it. So healing, it's so important. And that's why it's very close to my heart, the work you do, and so many therapists and coaches out there. I have so much appreciation for it because I know that once people get to unblock, uncover some of those limiting beliefs and lies within themselves, then the truth appears. I mean, it was never out there in the first place, like you said beautifully. It was always with them, in them. Yeah, it's like they blossom. Yes, they right. Let it, they let their true beauty and creativity and love out. Yes, yes, that's it. And with that in mind, I have to ask you this question. So you are a licensed marriage and family therapist for many years now. How did you, what inspired you to become a therapist? And, and with that, I guess I would love to hear a bit more about your own story, anxiety story or trauma story. Unfortunately, I say that with a sad note, really. I come from the same place. (laughs) I wish more people Mm. wouldn't have that background, but it's often the case. Well, it's such a paradox because um, what led me into being a therapist was just a fascination with, you know, Virginia Satir said she wanted to be a parent investigator. And I I didn't study her, you know, in depth, but I really remember her saying that. And and my Mm. therapist at the age of 28, the woman that I was going to, she said, what do you really want to do with your life? Because I was working at the state in a job that I wasn't really happy with. And a lot of people there told me, oh, you're overqualified for this. And yet I always had this struggle, this performance anxiety, this self-doubt. 
And when she asked me that, I said, well, when I was about 11, I wanted to be a psychiatrist. Mm, (laughs) And I really didn't know what a psychiatrist was because I don't want to dole out medicine. But, you know, as as a 30-year-old, I looked at her and I just said, well, now I know that to me that meant a therapist. And what led me to therapy was that I wasn't happy with my life. I wasn't blossoming. I wasn't opening up. I wasn't confident and enjoying my life. Mm. And so that first Mm. therapist, it was a rocky start. I've been through many therapists and each of them have something different to offer because they're humans, they're wounded humans. And as I got more and more um, into therapy, I just got more and more interested. She said, well, why aren't you doing that? And I looked at her straight and said, well, I'm not smart enough. And her mouth dropped open. Uh, yeah. And and that was a change moment in my life mm. because she just said, you're one of my smartest patients. Mm. I don't understand mm. why you struggle with that. And she said, if I were you, I would just go get my master's right now. And I I just really struggled with that for a while. And then I went and signed up for a master's degree. I was scared of debt. I was scared that I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, all kinds of stuff, um, you know, all kinds of blocks were coming up for me. But that was the beginning of this fascination with um, why can't I change? Why can't other people change? And little by little, I was changing, but it wasn't way fast enough. It wasn't right. the speed that I wanted to go. And unfortunately, there is so many more techniques that are on the market nowadays than when I was, you know, 35 years ago. Um, and one of them that I'm very grateful for, two of them, um, are Internal Family Systems by Dick Schwartz. And working with parts of self. And the other one is tapping. Mm. And that was by Gary Craig, who wasn't even a therapist, but he was a Stanford graduate engineer who interviewed psychiatrists, psychologists, body workers, um, acupuncturists, all kinds of people to synthesize that technique. So when I discovered those after I had a lot of EMDR, I still am embarrassed to say that there was a lot of work that I needed to do. But, you know, when you are in that place of needing work, you don't always realize it. Mm. Ah. Oh, wow. That was a question that I used to ask, I remember, and now came up again. So this is a good time to talk about this. So how do we know when we are healed, Leslie? What are the signs that you have found it to be very yeah, helpful? Well, for one thing, I don't think we're ever healed. Mm. Um, it's yeah. a process and yeah. it's really ongoing until the day we choose to not be here anymore um, or nothing is stimulating to us. Mm. And as I mentioned earlier, I have started to believe in reincarnation and each life, we get an opportunity to really, really get deeper into what our own meaning is. And I think each life, we choose a different meaning, a, a different modality to work with. Um, mm. And so, yeah, 
I'm starting to forget the question. <laughs> yeah, it's about being but, healed. Yeah, being, being healed. Yeah. I don't think we're ever healed. And and I was watching Pam Krause and Tony Irvine Blank give, because I'm still training in IFS, and she was saying, you know, just because you heal parts doesn't mean that you're never ever triggered again mm, but yeah. it's more manageable and that's what my book is about is it's mm, and my work is about yeah. is just helping people manage their daily triggers better and a deeper understanding of themselves mm, i love that yes it resonates true to me uh, so you mentioned the book it's titled the five solutions manage anxiety without medication so the book will be released soon, but you let me know and then I'll let everybody know. I'll have on my website, Leslie, when it's out, when, on Amazon out there. I, I almost want to dive into it right away, but I have other questions here for you. <laughs> we'll talk in a moment about the book. I'll go back to it. Another question for you that I usually ask therapists is, what is your idea of mental health these days? What is to be mentally healthy? It doesn't, I know it doesn't mean to be healed, but... What would that look like, the goal of the process of healing even? Yeah, um, mental health to me looks like a balance of challenges and confidence and relaxing into life so that you can have joy. Because when we have too many, many mental challenges and triggers mm. that push us into depression or anxiety or some kind of discomfort. If you're constantly um, trying to manipulate and manage that triggering, um, you're worn out. You don't have much room for joy. So I think that, yeah, when the triggers are manageable, it makes more space for that depth of getting to know who you are, what gives you joy, and and then learning how to set boundaries and be with yourself and others in a way that becomes more balanced. Uh, so balance is the key. It, yeah. it sounds like a contradiction way when we talk about management, right? Managing anxiety or managing anything, because that implies also this constant work, which means we are never free, really to be, to just be here and enjoy. I love the way you say that, for being confident to enjoy your own life. So that kind of reminds me of the idea of freedom. I have another platform that's titled The Freedom to Feel. And I titled that way because it came to me from all the traumas that I went through that I still had those triggers and I still have them from time to time. And I always wondered, like, I have done so much healing work uh, and spiritual work at that. So... And I always wonder if they would go away. So I never did. And then I'm, I just made peace with them in a sense of um, accepting, a lot of acceptance of what is happening in, in the moment. So I just like let them be. And a lot of times it's uncomfortable, but it helped me incredibly to just, it's, in a way I'm freeing myself and the thoughts and the memories at the same time, just letting everything just be, yes. be here without trying too hard to push them away. Yes, and, and that's so um, deep because what acceptance does to parts of self is there's no struggle, there's no resistance. And yes. I think that's truly where the yes. healing comes yes. is when we become our own witness yes. 
to the depth of pain and the struggle of parts of ourself that still get activated. If we can, you know, step aside a bit and not feel so overwhelmed by these parts, it's as if a child is coming to you crying and, you know, the adult doesn't usually get overwhelmed. They just center themselves and become grounded and, and say, I'm here, honey, I'm here for you, whatever you need, if you need to talk, if you need a hug. And that is so healing just within ourselves. If you just accept those triggers, those parts that still, you know, have those reactions, then there's no resistance. So yeah, yeah you've done a lot of work. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, no, not resisting. <laughs> it's not easy though. Sometimes I see myself resisting to whatever it is. And then Immediately, the awareness of not even resisting resistance, kind of letting even resistance to be. I know it's almost like layers upon layers, and it's just kind of, uh, you keep, it's almost that there's an observer here that's, it's always here and it's never changing. I know you mentioned about the reality that changed. That would be the relative reality of bodies and minds. But then there's something that I uncovered. I mean, this is a spiritual understanding that has been here for thousands of years. It's called Vedanta non-duality. Advaita Vedanta is a Hindu philosophy. So I just uh, kind of, it, it, was, it was always with me, this longing to know more, to go deeper. And then I ended up finding this philosophy that really resonates with the things that I already kind of knew to be true. Something here that never changes. And that is um, what I see that keeps observing what is moving, what is changing. It's so oh, fascinating. Yes. yes, fascinating, mm -hmm. fascinating. So there was something that you mentioned, EMDR. I talked to a lot of therapists about this uh, healing methods. It's wonderful. Tapping as well, IFS as well. And then there's one that I never heard about. It's compassionate inquiry. Talk to me for a moment about <laughs> this method, Leslie. <laughs> And to be honest, to be truly transparent, I've never studied with Gabor Mate, but I've read several books and watched about eight YouTubes. And <laughs> yes, the man wonderful. is just speaking what I've been thinking for 30 years. When I, when I come into touch with someone who's abusing alcohol, when I come into contact and, and work with someone who really can't get out of their own way and they've got this critic going, I really do a deep dive into their childhood. And compassionate inquiry is really about looking, standing back and looking what you've been through and, and really understanding this person, if I've done my work and I'm realizing somebody in front of me has been very hurt by life and they're still struggling with parts of themselves, what he does is he inquires about the struggle in a confrontive but really loving way. Mm, yeah. And he also sort of holds up the mirror. I remember one woman he was working with who was an addict and, and he said, oh, you've mentioned many times that your parents were really critical and they weren't there for you. And, you know, what does this alcohol do for you? And she says, well, it, it fills up the hole. And he says, yeah, of course there's a hole there. 
And she's looking at him like, what? Yes. <laughs> and and yeah. so his <laughs> compassionate inquiry is, mm. and, and you don't understand why you can't give this substance up? So he's sort of starting to go through the back door and challenge her critic because she has this horrible critic that says, my God, you should, you should, you know, left this stuff a long time ago. It's ruining your life. You've done this and this and this because of it. And he's compassionately siding with her use. And when you accept and actually even acknowledge there's a good reason for doing something rather destructive, it actually loosens the hold that that part has on you. And he, and he won't call it a part. And he, uh, he, yeah. uh-huh. I, I watched him and um, mm-hmm. Dick Schwartz have wonderful conversations um, because it's all a matter of how we see things. And even Gabor says, you know, I look at it as a, as a construct. Well, how different is a construct from a part? <laughs> uh, I mean, if you really look at the semantics of it, they're looking at it the same way. You know, everybody has parts in Dick's mind that are pushed into roles to help this person survive whatever they're going through. And compassionate inquiry just comes up next to that person with love and compassion and says, you have every reason to be doing what you're doing. And they just give you, they just give him this look like, what? Nobody's ever told me that before. And so that understanding, that loving understanding helps loosen the hold that that part that's trying to help destructively has on that person. Yes, it makes a lot of sense to me. So in a way, it the parts of us, is, as you say, is trying to help. It's always everything, actually. Life is so supportive, it's so wonderful in so many ways that it's, it's trying to do their job. <laughs> but then a lot of times it gets stuck somewhere because of belief systems. Then we get just fixated in a way in some beliefs and then we... we we just stop there and we end there and just get what we call it getting stuck. But in a sense, that's why I love the idea of, of flow and what basically means just focusing on what doesn't change because that allows me to, to kind of be the flow. It's not even observe the flow because we are not just the observers and the witness, but we are, we are life itself. So it's, it's, at the same time, we notice and, and, and live it. It's almost experiencing and noticing at the same time. But it makes a huge difference when we know that we are not the experience itself. That's not the absolute reality per se. It is just a relative reality. And it could be like what you say with the parts work. I did interview somebody about that. It could be just called that. It's just a part of what this is. So it's the relative which has the body-mind complex to me is, uh, would be parts. And then there's something that the witness that that's not a part, that's overarches everything else. So it's mm-hmm. almost everything else that changed, it's changed, that's changing, it's happened in that which doesn't change. So that has been my realization. It sounds very abstract, I guess, speaking this way, but that's, it, it just has been very different <laughs> to, 
to experience mm-hmm. life from that perspective. Like, wow. It's very uh, opening, mm-hmm. very um, liberating to you being able to participate. Yes, right. It's almost like a sense of being, it's a freedom itself, Leslie. It's like, wait a minute, I don't have free will. I am free. <laughs> this is freedom. Just, and it's love at the same time, which it has to do with being open. So not really knowing what's going to happen, but open to anything. But knowing yeah. that this is what love is. And I, I love the way that you describe it because I'm just sort of comparing it in my mind to the way that Dick Schwartz describes self and parts. The observer is self, according mm, to him, yeah. and self never changes. And it has qualities to it that are, you know, what we all want, um, compassion, caring, confidence, and um, several more. But then the parts um, like you said, they keep us from, they can keep us if they've um, really been pushed into roles from injury um, of helping us. And they keep us from participating and flowing in life. Mm. And I love the way, the grounded way that he sort of describes it, but it's, it's parallel. It's, it's almost mirror the same of what you're describing. Yes. So it is a spiritual understanding, but it's in a way, is the same thing. That's why I feel like philo- uh, well, philosophy, of course, philosophies, some kinds of philosophies, and well, philosophy itself, psychology and spirituality, they are so connected in a way that we are trying to find the truth. That's what it is. And it's beautiful to see humans not being afraid of doing that, going deep enough, actually see what's happening. <laughs> Uh, so enough with that spirituality part, but to me, everything's spiritual. So let me go back to the anxiety. So in the book, you talk about, yeah, you, you have the question there. Clearly, you ask, what is anxiety? And then you say, in the book, you say, the definition in the dictionary says it is an intense feeling of unease for no certain cause. And then you say, I don't agree. So I'd love to hear I would love to hear from you now. <laughs> I, mean, I read it, why you, you don't agree, but talk to me about that. Yeah, I, <laughs> I have um, just, well, when you were asking me about Gabor, a lot of times people say, oh, there's an addiction and it doesn't have anything to do with mental health. It's separate. And what happens in my mind, in and Gabor Mate's mind, is that the addiction is formed because there's mental health issues. And so if you're going to say anxiety forms for no specific reason, you're going to scare people because, oh my God, it could hit anybody at any time if there's no reason for it and there's no root. And I am definitely a therapist that looks for roots because that I have found over 28 years is where the healing is and and even my own healing. So when somebody comes to me with anxiety, I do a full intake. I talk about their childhood. I talk about their adulthood experiences. And there's always a correlation to when their anxiety starts. And they may have been anxious actually their whole life and not known it as I was. I mean, who comes to you as a child and says, oh, gee, you're awfully anxious, kiddo. I mean, nobody does that. And even as a young adult, I, I look back and think, why didn't anybody just sort of sit me down and just say, hey, 
you're really suffering. You have a lot of anxiety. There's something you can do about that. And so when I look back into their childhood, it's often due to attachment um, severs or not even having um, consistent attachment with caregivers. That in itself creates a whole host of anxiety in the body for the child. And they're too busy surviving it to understand it or to know anything different. And when I started working on myself, I still didn't really get how how big my anxiety was because I suffered from depressions as well that would come and go. And I now know that there was parts of me that would put me into a depression. Um, depression is sort of a dissociation from self. And so is anxiety. It's a, a flooding a flooding by a part that is so worried and it thinks it's helping, but it's not. It actually makes it worse. And so when I work with people through either tapping or EMDR or parts work, they really start to unhook from the part of them that is flooding with anxiety. And they start to get to understand it and why it is so anxious. And they can witness and heal that part and then actually witness and heal the protector um, that often shuts them down from doing things that they want to do. So there's this, I think Dick is, is absolutely right. There's a whole little internal family that most everybody has. Some families get along better than others. <laughs> so true. <laughs> so, <Yeah>. so true. <laughs> So there's always a root cause. And uh-huh. Even if it wasn't in childhood, there, there was an experience that caused it. Mm. Yes. So it's very complex, right, Leslie? The mind itself, the psyche, very mm-hmm. complex. I have a question that I usually, I think I have been asking some of the therapists that I interview. I'll ask you two, if you don't mind. Well, solution one in your book, it's titled The Psyche, uh, Healing unconscious parts of self. So the word unconscious and subconscious, what is the difference between the unconscious and the subconscious? I actually don't know. And I don't feel bad saying that. They're so similar. And I think they're actually used interchangeably a lot. Now, somebody could come back and say, oh my gosh, she doesn't know what her stuff. Um, and, and I wouldn't be the least bit daunted by that because I know that there's two minds and one of them is formed at an early, early age and it's impressed upon with images and feelings. And so if we don't bother to put new impressions and new feelings on those images of what I call the, the unconscious, um, it stays the same. And that's why a lot of times you'll see a 60-year-old person acting like an 8-year-old. Yes. They, they yes. don't change. Yes. Parts of themselves get stuck. <laughs> yes. and, and I believe that the parts are in the unconscious or the subconscious mind. And, and I really don't know the difference between the two. Um, the, the difference is your intellect, your left brain, can can impress on the right brain and the subconscious Mm -hmm. if it so desires desires to, but it takes a lot of work 
And most people say, I've made the decision not to smoke anymore. I, I've made the decision not to do this behavior anymore. And it and often it doesn't work and they mm. don't understand why. But I truly believe the parts reside in our unconscious. And that's why it doesn't work is because you actually have to go directly to that part or that experience that caused that behavior in the first place and work with it, reform it. Yes. Wow. Yeah. Thank you for your honesty and for entertaining the question, because I think I had the same, I got the same answer from, from pretty much everybody. They try to explain and then in the end, you know, I'm not sure um, what the difference is. They all say that. So I think that's why I keep asking. Maybe somebody will say, no, I know <laughs> I found knows. it. Yeah, I know what it is. But I like the way you said that. So it's just the mind has different, almost like compartments, which is interesting. I mean, we know memories, so we have names for all these things. And then the intellect, which I, I often think about understanding, when the intellect has this quality of understanding, it gets to know, understand something, which to me is one of the high, I mean, it's causing intellect for a reason. So it has to do with intelligence. It's very intelligent, wise. So, and then the unconscious, the way you say it, are the parts reside there. So that's why, and probably that's why belief systems, I think you, they get in the way a lot of times. You said, in your book, you say something interesting about beliefs. You say, we are not aware of many of our, of our beliefs, and yet they drive our behaviors. So I know you mentioned this as well just a moment ago, but I'm trying to kind of understand that it's true. Some people, I mean, I remember behaving as, as if I was like a child still. It's almost like reliving childhood, almost like coming from the very mature type of mind, but an adult body. And that, it didn't make sense to me. So there was a part of me that was aware of that and it would, would always question, but it was not strong enough. That perhaps it was the intellect trying to alert me, trying to let me know that there was an unconscious kind of behavior or way of, 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 of perceiving reality. But it's still very complex to me. Obviously, you are the, um, uh, you therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, are the, the scientists of the mind. I tend to not kind of, I know, di dive into it too too much. Maybe that's why I didn't become a therapist because that's mm -hmm. not really something that I would like to dance with. <laughs> it's so complex that it's much easier for me to see what easier in, in but not easy. <laughs> Simple but not, not easy. It's simple to kind of get closer to what watches all that, all this movement of mind. The mind keeps changing, the behavior, the body changes, and then we'll lose the body at some point. What is noticing all this. So I know it feels like the intellect, but it's not. So I don't know. Some people call this spiritual mind. Some people call, say that's God itself that just watches everything. It doesn't really, yeah, I, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And I don't use the God word. A lot of people do, and I have no problem with that. Um, yeah. What is watching what is watching us grow or experience yeah. change? Mm -hmm. and, and I actually don't think some people are linked in enough to um, I really I really do embrace 
Dick Schwartz's self, which he thinks is the spiritual part. Um, and that can be interchanged with God, but it's internal in all of us. And if we are a spiritual being having a human experience here, I think that if we are relaxed enough, we can get in touch with that observer. Many people can't. Mm. They are they are rarely, if ever, in self. And that's why they struggle with mental health issues and alcohol and, and all kinds of addiction issues is that when they're not open and trusting um, enough to get in touch with self or have experienced it, they're closed off from that and they don't have an observer. So I would explain, you know, in my own experience, I would talk of it as that spiritual aspect of us is the one that is observing. Yes, right. It really sounds like that. Yeah. The way you speak from a scientific point of view. Yeah, psycho psychological point of view. Yes, um, the self, that's it. That's what I'm interested in, um, yeah. in the self and being more in the self. <laughs> so I can let everything else just be what they are, which is basically change, temporary. They keep, I mean, like you said, I love the way you said that. Yeah, we just, what observes and watches everything that changes. Because I remember really well when was I was tiny as a child. And then I remember when I was a teenager and then all the chains throughout, I mean, it's just incredible. But who is, who is making, it's not even making notes of it, but who is, um, who watches all that with the, without doing anything, without being, being touched by it? That's what it is. It's almost like, mm -hmm. it's almost like tapping into this perfectly healed place, a place that yeah. doesn't need healing so we can explore what needs healing. <laughs> that's how I see yeah. it. And that's so powerful. I think one of the few modalities that I've discovered is um, the tapping. Mm. The, all of the experiential modalities help people get in touch with self. Just uh -huh. talking about problems, yeah. just talking about hope for change doesn't really um, help them stay, step away from themselves and, and let self, you know, kind of shine through. And I think those compassionate um, and confidence and caring and, um, you know, all of, all of the qualities that we all want to have. Yes. Yes. I think self embodies. Yes. And Dick Schwartz has worked with people who even have um, are psychotic and and antisocial. And he said that self exists in everyone. It's just really hard to reach for some people. And I think it's hard to reach because of the woundedness. The experiences that they've had on this planet are just devastating. And the parts get pushed into such protective and controlling roles that they don't trust self. And that's an aspect of his theory that I still want to dive deeper into as to why they don't trust self and where does self go. But I, I guess in my mind, I've just sort of... Um, accepted the answer for now that self is just sort of offline <laughs> when the child yeah. when the child isn't accepted yes. and supported self doesn't feel okay and it's going to get the child more in trouble 
So the parts start closing them down or having them do things to get attention or, you know, their whole nervous system starts changing. And that's another thing that I love about um, Gabor's compassionate inquiry is he talks a lot about how a child's nervous system adapts to their Petri dish, their, their family system. And oftentimes kids with ADHD have to be chaotic because if the home is chaotic or critical or violent, they it wouldn't make sense for the child to be succinct and clear. Right. It might get them beaten to death. Ah, uh, yes. Wow. And the child can't even handle what's going on anyway. There's really not a lot of protection in children. I read books about chakras and all kinds of, of things. And this one woman, um, her last name's Brennan. I can't remember her first name. She, used to, she was an ex-NASA scientist. And um, she went into actually healing with her hands. And she said a child doesn't even have fully formed chakras and protection until they're eight years old. And that just blew me away. I, I didn't know that either. Um. But it was, it was so enlightening because that's why kids can't handle dysfunctional environments. Their whole nervous system gets affected by it. Yes. And then self, as you call it, I call it universal wisdom, intelligence or God even that gets almost like identified with the experience and gets lost into it. It's almost as, as, as if in a dream. Or it has to or, step aside maybe and wait. Yeah, I don't <laughs> think we are ever without it. Yeah, but the thing is, we, it's always here, but it's, it, it has kind of identified itself, kind of blended itself with the experience. Experience is so powerful that it's almost like watching a movie that it's, it feels so real that we ended up being uh, becoming emotional about it. And we will forget for a moment that's a, that's a movie. Or it's a dream. When we are dream at night, we don't know actually if, that's, if it's what's real and what's not. So that's how I see it in a way. And then we ended up just kind of believing the unreal. And that's, uh, that's how Vedanta is explained. The way you call it self, they call it divine, infinite intelligence or consciousness, pure consciousness. It's a choice that it makes. It's almost like it doesn't have other type of expression to take form, to, to manifest into. And then it does what it does. And it's extremely, let's say, creative. So it can be anything and then ended up being something that it's, it's not of, it, of its own nature. And that's what happens, I, I feel now, with most human beings we have been so identified with, with the body-mind and we do believe that we are the body and the mind. <laughs> and, that's, and that's why we have so many problems that we are trying to solve and but we, we can't because we are trying to use the same, the body-mind to solve its own problems and it, it can't. Well, that's another conversation, another podcast. Maybe you can talk about, <laughs> we can talk about the self. I'd love that actually. <laughs> uh, the, the, the Vedanta spiritual perspective and then the self. That's, I mean, that's so similar to me. Uh, so something that caught my attention in your book as well was the solution three, uh, law of attraction and anxiety. Change your energy and your focus. So, and you have actually steps there too, five steps to the law of attraction. So I'd love to hear more about that. And it sounds very spiritual to me, <laughs> the way you explain in the book. Of course, I, I have, I have, I'm familiar with the law of attraction. So it's, it's really feels spiritual. 
Yeah, and I'm sure a lot of readers or listeners are going to say, oh my goodness, that's such um, a hypocrisy to talk about anxiety and law of attraction because um, those that know about a lot of the law of attraction know that whatever vibration you're emanating comes back to you. And unfortunately, yes. I do agree with that. It's yeah. very true, which makes it feel even more threatening if you struggle with anxiety and you're constantly putting anxiety out. But one of the things that um, happened for me is I was still having anxiety, um, but less prevalent just about specific things. And I was also working the law of attraction and realizing that one of the things that you can do if you're in a bad mood is just realize it, start checking in with yourself and being more aware. How am I feeling right now? What am I doing and what am I thinking that's causing those feelings? And so yeah. if you realize that you're anxious, the other the other um, way to flip out of negativity, well, first of all, you do have to notice. The next thing is you have to identify what you would like instead, What maybe what's causing that and then what can help it break up a little bit. And if you're focusing on all the negative, because that's usually what we wake up to is, oh, I've been thinking about this and boy, that does not make me happy. Mm -hmm, yes. It makes me mad or it <laughs> makes me fearful. Yes. And so when we wake up to that, we we can pivot is what they call in, um, in using the law. And the way that you pivot is by taking your attention off of that thing, at least for a few minutes. And I actually put my attention towards things that I really love and enjoy and feel good about. Mm. Yes. And so the anxiety would be, okay, what is causing me anxiety right now? And when you identify it, then identify what you want to have happen. And maybe you can go out and garden or golf or um, bike ride or do something that's joyful to you while you're identifying. What is it that I really want? And once you identify what you really want and act as if you it's coming to you and if you have it, um, that has the propensity to change that anxiety. And I can flip from being really anxious to fairly confident and excited in a, in a short amount of time, using my mind to know that this anxiety isn't getting me anywhere. And what I'd really like to do is you know, be comfortable in front of an audience or be comfortable with this couple that um, is contentious that I'm working with or be comfortable with this book that I'm writing and really happy with the outcome. So just focusing on, ooh, what have I, what have I been thinking and doing that's making me feeling this way? And then realizing, oh, I do have the power to change that. I have some power over my mind. I have some power over my behavior. And I do have some power over beliefs. And beliefs are deeper. And so that, that might not be an easy pivot, but you can sit down and tap on a belief and think about where you got that belief. How old were you when you came up with that belief and you don't want it anymore? But you can tap away the roots of it and then it just sort of collapses. Right. Ah, wow. I'm so glad you included that. <laughs> and it's not a contradiction to me at all. I mean, the book is so helpful and you, you're so generous with the information. You just try 
to help others in so many different ways, in the way you speak in a book, the, the format, you tell stories and the exercise. I mean, it's, there's so much there. I just kind of, you know, you just put a smile on my face because <laughs> I know that this is the beautiful work of healing. Not even try doing what you you call to do to heal yourself and others. It's it's that flow again. And in the book, you, you say that about the law of attraction. The law of attraction is about vibrational flow, which uh, I, it resonates true to me. And then also the idea of shifting attention um, being able to do that. It's such a powerful, powerful tool. Empowering, basically. I mean, truly empowering. Yes. Yes. Shifting is is very empowering. And I know that even though the law of attraction says, you know, you're going to get back what you put out, which is yeah. really scary to somebody yes. that struggles yes. with anxiety. Yeah. And if you're anxious all the time, I would probably say don't do the law of attraction yet. Mm. Work on some of the other modalities in the book and then come and work on that. But yeah, it can be scary as well as empowering, which is what most of life is, right? When we mm. face our fears, mm. we come we become very empowered. Yes, that's it. Beautifully said. Yes. And then um, we're almost at the end. I want to mention, if you don't mind, the solution four and five. So four, it's the body, decrease anxiety with yoga, exercise, and breath. And then solution five, the mind, increase tolerance with meditation, mindfulness, and affirmations. So you cover, you cover everything. Um, and then <laughs> even the part of spirituality that I was do. looking for, it's there too <laughs> with the concept of the law of attraction. So um, although, like I said before, everything to me is spiritual. Um, in any way, we can help others to free themselves from fear and this, uh, this feeling of being stuck. To me, that's the spiritual work. Because then we are, uh, we are able to, to enjoy this life, this experience called life. I love the way you said that, being confident enough to enjoy you know, what's here. Uh, you said it in a different way, but that's what the message I got from you. <laughs> So that is very refreshing and beautiful and simple and simple in a way. Thank you so much for being you, Leslie. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Valeria. I love what you do as well. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, yeah, this is my sacred space, I call it. So before we say goodbye for today, I do have some other questions for you, the ending questions. But would you, would you like to add anything that you left unsaid? Or even read a passage in your book. I know it's not published yet, but... That's a question that I usually ask everyone, just in case. Oh, and I'm unprepared. I don't have my book right in front of me. But I will say, you know, those last few chapters of talking about um, body and mind, whatever our mind is thinking and coming up with creates feelings and vibrations mm. in the body. So, yeah. so you know, our body it takes a pummeling when it's living through lots of negative feelings, lots of negative thoughts. And that, even though it seems superficial, just to work, you know, alone with the body, like yoga and, and you know, sort of staying active, it's not superficial because it's sort of like, um, I don't know how else to put the metaphor, but it's like a um, an auto pit. You you drive your car in, and you know all these guys start working on it, and or women, and and you know everybody's giving it attention yeah. to help the wear and tear. Yeah. 
And they know that that auto is not going to last forever, but they're slowing down the wear and tear. And that's truly what I think our mind-body connection is, is the more acceptance and the more loving you can be towards all parts of yourself in this life, whether they've caused you problems or other problem, other people problems, the more accepting and the less resistance you have, the more healing there's going to be. And, it, and you're going to be a different person. Mm, yes, a billion times to that uh, acceptance, mm-hmm. right? Oh, God, yeah, I could just go on forever with the yes here <laughs> for that. <laughs> Has been my own experience to this day. Yes. Beautiful. I love your wisdom. I love your insights from personal experience as well, professionally personal. It's just, uh, it's just beautiful. Thank you again, Leslie. Thank you. Valeria. So before we say goodbye, two questions. One technical one, that'll be the third one, the last one, but I have to, I'll ask you this one. Um, what do you love most about being in the human body or being the human body? Oh, well, that would probably involve um, the five senses, but also the heart and the feeling of appreciation and love. Um, So I love being in my body. I Mm, love working with my hands in the garden. I love feeling my strength when I'm riding my bike. I'm very somatic. I love cooking. I love just letting my mind sort of rattle as I chop Uh onions. Uh (laughs) I love being in the the kitchen and Uh everything from baking desserts to making entrees. And so I think it's just so experiential. My eyes are looking out at the beautiful plants that I'm seeing and the soft breeze, you know, moving some of them. And it's just, it's fully sensory if you can Mm. open up to all of it. Mm. Wow, I love that answer. (laughs) I'm kind of imagining everything, (laughs) visualizing. (laughs) Uh, It feels incredible. I remember somebody saying, I think I asked you, what's the purpose of life? It's just to be here. Um, almost like an acceptance and fully engaged mm. with whatever we are doing. So mm-hmm. being present to what is present basically is the description of what you said. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Huh? And then the last question, philosophical question per se, is at this time, what do you feel is the world's greatest need? You know, it's hard not to be trite, but the first thing that comes to my head is compassion. I think that there's um, very little of that. Well, actually, I do. I don't think that. I know that the world is accelerated in um, this Aquarius time that we're in, and technology has accelerated us so much. But I think compassion and patience. Um really go a long way with helping people understand self and not limiting others. Mm. Wow. Yes. I, yes. Well, what can I say? (laughs) What's not to love about that (laughs) answer? Yes. Compassion, patience, kindness, right? It it comes, yeah, they they also seem very simple, all these ideas, but. Oh, they're hard. Yeah, it takes being healed (laughs) enough, right, Uh, Leslie? I remember somebody saying that too here, like, you know, I'm, I'm sufficiently healed to be able to love, to be at peace, to be kind to others. That kind of, yeah, it kind of gave me a different perspective too, because a lot of times we look for destination to be healed, completely healed and to live in the perfect world and all this. But mm-hmm. it is the embodiment of this 
small accomplishments of just being open enough, healed enough <laughs> to see the beauty mm-hmm. of this way of life. Thank you again for, so. for being so inspiring. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> and before we say goodbye, where's the best place to find more information about you, Leslie, in your work? Well, I have a website. It's a small one. It's lesliedavismft.com. And I will be posting um, some more things, including probably my book within a few months. Mm, yes, I'll have the link on the podcast notes, of course, and the book too. When it wants to release, please let me know. I'll have that there too. Thank you so much again for your presence, and we'll talk soon. Bye for now. Oh, blessings. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. To learn more about Leslie Davis and her work, please visit lesliedavismft.com. To learn more about this podcast, please visit fitforjoy.org slash podcast. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.